Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming to our session so early in the morning. Uh, my name is Eric, and I'm development director at Made in Me. We're a digital publisher, digital developer based in London. So I, I think it's become quite a cliche these days to talk about the, you know, the massive changes that the publishing industry is going through. Um, Ebooks in particular, um, depending on the article you read or the study that, that you're looking at, are either killing publishing, you know, uh, supplementing the decline in physical books, or declining themselves. But what's not really been studied or really tracked in any real granular way are the various stories that publishers are now telling that aren't ebooks, but that are websites, that are apps, uh, many of which don't even look or feel like books in the way that we, we describe them now, um, you know, with lots of animation, gaming mechanics, um, and some, many without even page turns, or even reading, for that matter. Um, at Made in Me, we, we're known for an app called MeBooks. It's essentially a digital picture book uh, store. And I'm just going to show a really quick clip so you know what it is. Oh. How to use your MeBook. The Three Little Pigs. Once upon a time, there was a mother pig who had three little pigs. And stop! Ooh, pigs! My absolute favorite! Tap this button to see your hot spot. Oh, look! He's got bricks! I love bricks! Double tap and swipe to delete. To create your own hotspots. <coughs> Hold down to record. Hello there, I'm a pig. Hello there, I'm a pig. Hold down to save or reset your me book. Swipe vertically from frame to exit. So as I mentioned, uh, MeBooks is essentially a digital children's bookshop. Um, but you know, only half of the revenue actually comes from selling books inside the app. The majority, the rest of the half of the revenue comes from marketing. So business to business um, promotions and sales that we make to companies like, say, Nestle, who will give away free MeBooks uh, in boxes of Cheerios. But they pay us for those downloads. The rest of the revenue, a very small but, but growing part of our revenue stream, is actually selling the physical rights and just the, the IP rights behind brands and stories that we launch ourselves on MeBooks. So this panel today is exactly about this, it's about looking at other ways that publishers are making money or publishing or creating <laughs> books, for lack of a better term, um, aside from just making physical books and looking at other revenue streams. So what I'd like to do is introduce the panel and if you could each come up, tell us who you are, what you do, um, and um, Tom, do you want to start? Lovely, thank you very much. For, um, for having me. Thanks, Eric. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'd like to tell you a bit about Nosy Crow and what we do, and then I'll show you um, one of our things. I'm not going to talk for very long. Um, so, Nosy Crow is um, 
uh, a smallish and, and newish uh, independent journalist publisher. We're based in London. Um, we were founded in 2010. Um, and we make print books and apps. Um, most of our business is print books. Um, this year we'll publish 60-something books, I think, and two or three apps. So the business is really sort of, in terms of numbers, focused on print. But we've um, developed a lot of uh, our reputation based on our apps, which are really, really interesting, kind of really highly interactive products. Um, so uh, before I show you one of them, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about some of the thinking that goes into making our apps, um, and then some of the apps that we make, and then really quickly I'm going to demo one. Um, so as I said, we're quite new. We were founded in, um, in 2010, and we started sort of publishing stuff in 2011. Um, and so one of the things that sort of determined the sorts of apps that we made was sort of circumstance. We were founded just as touchscreen technology was really sort of coming into the market in a big way. The iPad had just been announced or was announced soon after Nosy Crow um, was sort of formed. Um, and that really sort of determined a lot of the guiding sort of strategy for the company. Um, and as well as that, you know, we didn't have a backlist unlike a, sort of existing larger um, publishers. And that meant we couldn't take existing books and sort of, um, sort of turn them into an app or squash them onto a screen. We decided we had to make original products. That's what we wanted to do. Um, and so that was the sort of the part of the decision-making that was really about circumstance. There's obviously actually a lot of sort of actual sort of guiding philosophy behind it as well. Um, and if anyone saw uh, my colleague Kate, who's in the audience uh, here, yesterday, um, you would have heard her say that um, we didn't want reading to be the most boring thing that children could do on a screen. And that was really, that's really what our apps are about. They're about making reading incredibly um, exciting um, on an iPad. And I mean, when I say that, I don't mean that reading is inherently boring or needs to be sort of supplemented as an activity. But um, I mean, I think we think, Nosy Crow, that children have incredibly high expectations of interactivity um, when they're picking up an iPad, you know, when they're using something, they expect it to sort of respond to them, you know, with, with uh, multi-touch, with, you know, a gyroscope, with an accelerometer, with all these incredible features that, you know, this device offers. So we wanted to take advantage of all of the features of a device and make really incredible interactive stories. And we wanted to do it because we knew other people would who wouldn't, you know, do it quite as well. And we wanted reading to be at the heart of what, of what we made. Um, so we made some fairy tale apps. Uh, we started off with the three little pigs, uh, and then Cinderella, and then Little Red Riding Hood, and then Jack and the Beanstalk, which was our most recent fairy tale. And um, the great thing about fairy tales is that uh, you know everyone knows them. They're really familiar internationally. The stories are well known, so you can you, the story is incredibly malleable. You can do a lot with them, um, and children really won't lose sight of what's going on. Um, and they're sort of they're just such rich, wonderful stories, and they work really well. So I'm going to show you now really quickly, because I don't want to um, spend too long here, a little bit of Jack and the Beanstalk, our most recent fairy tale app. Yeah, here we go. Great. So the guiding vision behind Jack and the Beanstalk was to make something that really blurred the boundary between story and game. Jack and the Beanstalk. Okay. I'm just going to turn the sound off really quickly, just for a little second. Um, we wanted to make something that really blurred the, you know, the boundaries between story and game. We made this, I think, particularly with boys in mind, um, and boys at an age who, where reading wasn't necessarily something they, they came to very comfortably on a, on a, you know, a, a, in a print book. We wanted something that they would respond to really naturally using some of the um, sort of familiar conventions of gaming that we knew children sort of, you know, ages six to eight are really comfortable with. So we decided to make something that was sort of like, um, uh, a bit like 
a game, but also very, very story-driven still. Um, our previous fairy tale app, Little Red Riding Hood, had a sort of choose-your-own-adventure element. You could choose different paths and navigate um, different ways through the wood. And in Jack and the Beanstalk, we created an even more sort of open-ended environment. So I'm going to show you a few scenes. So it begins in a way that you'd expect. Here's Jack. Great. And there's lots of dialogue. The characters talk when you touch them. They move. Um, there's lots to see in every scene. And I'm going to skip forward a little bit. Okay. There you are. So the story sort of is set up in the way that we're all familiar with. Jack takes his cow to market. Looks rather sad. Um, he meets a rather suspicious-looking man. <laughs> Wonder who knows what could happen here. Um, so, and you, there's lots, there's lots to do in every scene. In this scene, so for instance, you can count the beans into Jack's backpack. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. So, eventually, Jack accepts his rather unwise offer. Mum's rather unhappy. I'm skipping ahead still. Whipping, whipping, whipping. The beanstalk appears. Jack climbs the beanstalk. Up he comes to the castle. And this is what gets really interesting, because now we're in this castle. And the castle is this totally open-ended environment with lots of doors. You can go behind any door, and you can see um, different characters in every room. Here we are. So this is, I'm gonna, this is what the castle looks like. There's all these different rooms. There's games behind every door. Um, and you can explore it in a different order every time. And you can lose in this version. You can wake up the giant and escape the castle early. Um, so this is what the whole castle looks like. You can go behind all of those doors, explore all the story in a different way every time. Um, so I don't want to overrun. I'm going to move back. That's Jack and the Beanstalk. Thank you. Um, so I'm from Egmont, which is Scandinavia's leading media group and Europe's largest children's publisher with a presence in over 30 countries. I'm Stephanie Gould, and my background is in digital media, having set up and managed CBeebies Interactive and Launch Club Penguin in Europe. Egmont UK has been on a journey from publishers of print products alone to becoming a truly multi-platform content creator, and looking after their digital publishing is incredibly exciting. As you can see, in the UK, Egmont has been developing a variety of digital products since 2006, when we launched with several titles on mobile using IQ software, and 2008, when we launched a series of Nintendo flipbooks. Our strapline is we bring stories to life, and digital is a great medium to do this, allowing us to create and build upon story worlds in ways which really connect with our users. According to Nielsen Books, reading is down by 8% for children and digital up. The only three activities which increased over the last year were, play were downloading gaming apps, texting, and watching YouTube videos, all digital. It's vital to keep exploring this area, and that's something that Egmont believes in passionately. Today, I wanted to show you a project that we've been working on over the past year with complete control, <clears throat> and which we launched at CMC last year. This is an example of how we've been using digital publishing to create potentially multi-platform IP, Jellypie Central. The aim was to take the popular imprint for humor titles, Jellypie, and turn this into a multi-platform home of all things funny. The initial result is a range of funny content that appeals to five to nine-year-olds on the platforms which they're using, mobile, YouTube, and the web. 
After some success with the mobile games, the first games reached number one for six to eights on the App Store in 27 countries. We're now approaching a UK broadcaster about the possibility of a TV series. Here's a clip of some of the content that we initially launched with. Hello everybody, my name is Federico Dini, I'm the founder um, of Honig Studio, a transmedia production company based in Berlin, and today I'm delighted to introduce you to our upcoming project Millie. Millie is a good example of how we work at Honig Studios, both from the creative as well as from the strategical business point of view. Millie has been conceived from the very beginning as a brand, a complete story world to be explored. Millie is a series of stories for children between two and six years old, told in picture books, interactive tablet apps, and animated series. On Apple Tree Hill, far, far away, Millie, a very young and very curious little snail, goes on a quest to find out what a snail does best. Along the way, she meets hundreds of strange and wonderful creatures, and in the process of helping them solving their own dilemmas, she learns how to be happy in her own beautiful blue-green shell. On a magical hill stands a very special apple tree, its branches heavy with confetti blossom, autumn leaves rosy apple all at the same time. Beneath the, road, beneath the tree lives our very young and very small curious nail, Millie. Every installment in this series sends Millie off on a new adventure with her best friend Miro, the ladybird, always by her side. Millie's adventure takes her all over and beyond the hill, from the sunny south side to the dark cold north side, inside the apple tree, up into the sky with the pendulum clouds, on the other side of the river where the scary forest is, until the um, inside of the river, which flows around the hill and taste of apple juice. There is nowhere that a young snail can go with the little help of her friends, of course. Emilia has a lot of friends. Imagine we create more than 100 characters. Here we try to take a group picture of them, but believe me or not, it's so difficult to gather them all, because <laughs> they are so busy, or they pretend to. Anyhow, Emilia's adventures are told across a number of platforms with each platform bringing its own new element to the story world as an whole. So the story engine remains the same as small curious nails set off on a voyage of discovery, meets a new creature, and in helping them solving their own issue, learns more about them, has fun, and comes away with a stronger understanding of herself and little memento of the encounter. So the story engine remains the same, but the way the story is told differs by platform. The picture book version of the story are the simplest of our proposition. Beautiful illustration by Jana Schell accompany a short text of a single storyline as Millie meets one creature on Apple Tree Hill and as an adventure with them. The story are told and designed to be read and reread as favorite bedtime stories with tactile page element and hidden panels. The youngest member of the audience will already get the sense that Millie's world 
is one to be played in. The interactive storybook app for tablets takes Millie's stories to the next level, offering a combination of story, mini-games, and surprising interactions. Each of the interactions or the interactive storybooks will combine up to three of the picture book stories, all collected in a larger theme and mixed with three mini-games, which are both fun to play, but also reinforce the light learning of each story. Each screen of the 30 pages app is a little adventure on its own. The illustration come to life whenever you touch them. So apple rolls, pendulum clouds swing on their strings like Newton's cradle, and after the rain, the rainbow comes out that can be strummed like a guitar. If it's possible on the tablet, it will happen in the app. We made the interactive storybook a long and an engaging experience, one that can be returned again and again. If you just want to read the stories, Wanda the Wise Owl can get you there straight from the pages of her big green book. You just want to play the games, pop inside Millie's shell, you'll find them all in there. The animated series brings Millie's adventure on Apple Tree Hill to the small screen with 52 episodes, five minutes each, featuring just one of the story per episode, but with far more details than the picture books. In every episode, Millie meets a new animal, discover what they need, and helps them in a usual creative way. In the process, she learns a little bit more about herself and about the animal, and she always gets a little souvenir for her house. The series aims to bring out the humor in Millie's world, both for children and for their parents. It's the only place where Millie's stories will be told to you in a character-owned voice. In these short and allegorical tales, with a light touch on education and a note to promoting self-confidence, we at Honic Studios, we hope that Millie will find her own special place in a heavily commercial market. Thanks. I'm genuinely thinking about asking Federico to come and read me stories before I go to <laughs> I'm uh, Antonio Gould, I'm a digital producer, I've been making digital stuff for about 15 years and um, in the last sort of four or five years I've got really, really interested in um, education and digital and the kind of power that um, digital products have to bring in terms of uh, learning and especially in terms of uh, kids learning um, and one of the big, biggest projects I've been working on is called Teach Your Monster to Read and it's for the uh, Usborne Foundation which is a charity set up by Peter Osborne, who's the founder of Osborne Publishing, with his uh, son and his daughter, Nicola and Martin, who are both uh, very experienced and successful people in their own right, um, having worked in games and film and, uh, and publishing. And, um, yeah, I'll, uh, well, I'll show you a little bit, bit of it now. Teach your monster to read! First steps. Teach Your Monster to Read is a free online game that helps children to practice the key first stages of reading, as in song. Take your monster on an adventure through a magical world, meeting the colourful island kings along the way. Children can practice matching letters to sounds, helping them to develop speed and accuracy. They'll also practice blending and segmenting. The game is brought to you by the Osborne Foundation. 
led by Peter Osborne of Osborne Publishing and has been made by a team of leading UK games designers. It's been informed and assessed by reading experts from the University of Roehampton. It's free and takes two minutes to start playing. Just visit www.teachyourmonstertoread.com. So the genesis of this project was about a few years ago when uh, Peter decided that he wanted to set up a charity and he wanted to help kids with, uh, with learning to read. Um, and he went, him and Nicola went around to a lot of teachers and asked them what, what their biggest problems were. And what they said was that kids uh, in their schools, a lot of them who struggle, it's not necessarily that they, they can't get it, it's that they can't focus and they can't focus for long enough to practice those skills so that they really get embedded and they develop that kind of automaticity. And the more that they spoke to people, the more that they realised that um, a video game could be really helpful for this. And there was nothing really on the market at that time um, that had a kind of persistence um, and that allowed a kid to play all the way through um, over a period of weeks and months and it would help them kind of uh, across all of, the, all of the key stages of reading. There was lots of stuff around which kind of dealt with little bits of that and maybe was playable for 20 minutes here or 30 minutes, here, 30 minutes there. Or there were these very big kind of structural reading programs often made by companies in the US and some by uh, companies in, in the UK as well, which did deal with that kind of depth but didn't, uh, weren't necessarily particularly fun. So our one-line brief was go out and make something that's really, really fun that will keep a kid engaged over a period of weeks or months and that actually genuinely will take them through all of those key first stages of reading. Um, and instead of going to an agency... Um, they took a slightly unusual approach, which is to uh, build a team internally of freelancers. So they came to me, and I helped them to build a team. Uh, and we built, uh, you know, what I, I like to think of is a real sort of dream team. So um, we uh, we worked with a company called Popley for a small uh, team uh, of two uh, designers and developers who are absolutely world-class um, game designers and developers. We worked with Rich Wake, who's a, a Cartoon Network, ex-Cartoon Network illustrator. You probably heard Simon Farnaby from Horrible Histories. Um, and uh, Roehampton University are leading uh, experts in, uh, world-leading experts in phonics. And through putting that team together over a period of a number of years, we very, very slowly but surely built a new brand um, called Teacher Wants to Read. And um, it's... Uh, in terms of going back to what those teachers asked us for, I think that what we've really tried to do is create something that, as I said, kids can play over a period of time, and it really does. Uh, well, by the time our third game is finished, which will be uh, at the beginning of next year, it really will take children from uh, the first step of learning, the first uh, letter sound, which is s, as in sun, all the way through to um, quite complex, uh, reading quite complex sentences, and all in a really fun and enjoyable way. Um, and it's made available for free to teachers who can sign up to it as a service. They can put as many kids on it as they like. Uh, and, and kids can play through it. They can play through it either at school or at home. Um, and we literally get two or three messages every day from teachers now uh, telling us, uh, just saying to us, thank you so much for building this because it's something we desperately needed. We didn't have available on the market and you've made it available to us, um, especially for free. Uh, and uh, yeah, they're pretty super pleased about it. Um, so yeah, that's me. Thank you very much. Well, thank, thanks everyone for your, uh, your introductions and for showing us um, all the great things you guys are working on. And I think it's probably th these days, um, you know, I think the reasons why publishers are creating digital or publishing digital stories and di making digital things is uh, sort of the, the reasons for it are quite clear. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you can each talk about what the challenges are, because I think, you know, whether or not 
the app or the the digital you know title you create is there to make money so you know about mon you know generating revenue or it's about uh, building a brand and might be free um, you know how do you actually generate money or traffic like what are the challenges to doing that well I mean it's not an original point I think anyone who's you know sort of developed apps before would say that the biggest challenge is discoverability I think on the app store um, it's this sort of vast sea of content um, that it's quite difficult to navigate particularly as a user and and the, you know the biggest things that we found that have made an impact for us have been and it's interesting actually that they're remarkably similar to you know the the things that have helped publishers sell books and it's been you know, support from retailers, which in this case is Apple. Um, promotion from Apple makes a big difference because it increases the visibility of your app. And right. then mainstream print coverage, <laughs> um, you know, reviews in um, The Guardian or The Sunday Times or USA Today or The New York Times makes a big difference to us. Um, so, so you find that those reviews or even the, uh, the features on Apple, does it drive sustained downloads? Well, well, I mean, or? you know, you, what you can see, that's those are the things that create visible surges in sales and revenue. I think it's probably true to say that, you know, all the great, you know, blogger reviews that we get and feedback from people on Twitter and, you know, like you, um, Antonio, it's really great. And it's, you know, there isn't a day where we don't hear from people on Twitter who say, oh, I love your Little Bit of Riding Hood app or my son's using Jack and the Beanstalk in the back of the car, right. that sort of thing. And I think that produces this sort of, ba this really great groundswell base level. But the things that you notice that produce, and it is a really dramatic spike, it's up and then, you know, down, and it might, the, the plateau that it reaches afterwards might be slightly higher than before. Right. But for sure, uh, reviews in particular, you see a big up, and then sure. it returns. And, and I suppose, I mean, I, I always thought it was very smart that you guys launched with fairy tales because it's something that people search for as well. Absolutely, yeah, that's a big thing. I was talking to someone about this yesterday. I mean, if you don't have a big brand um, that you're developing uh, with your apps, you know, we don't, we don't, we haven't made an app of a big licensed property. You know, we haven't partnered with Disney or whatever, so we don't sure. have we don't have Peppa Pig or Dora the Explorer. Um, so, if we're <laughs> going to make something that people will search for, fairy tales are a great place to go because people will search for Little Red Riding Hood or just fairy tale on the app store, and they'll hopefully they'll find us. Absolutely. And, and what about you, so Stephanie? I mean, what you're doing is actually creating a new brand, launching a mm -hmm. brand. I mean, the, the rest of you as well, actually. But uh, you know, launching this this crazy, I think, awesome brand called Jelly Pie. So, what are you doing? Because it's not a Peppa Pig, not yet. But yeah. and what are you doing to actually get people to find it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think discoverability is a massive problem, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think also kind of user experience. So, making sure you really tailor the experience for your user. Um, so something we really did when we were developing Jellyfly Central is, is just put consumer insight just at the core of that. Um, we started off with a survey of children asking what made them laugh on different platforms. We created a brief and then we scoped what did the they project. say out of, out of interest yeah. if you wanted to say? Like, well, what, what was the thing that they wanted to Yeah, so look, some of the main things that made them laugh were things like Harry Hill videos. So, you know, <laughs> right. that just came up time and again, which was hilarious. Um, searching for videos like Tom and Jerry on YouTube. I mean, YouTube is like an endless source. Tom and Jerry still. Tom and Jerry wow. still. Okay. But one of the interesting things, and I, um, I said this at, a, at another time, was that um, we sort of said, you know, what else makes you laugh? And they said um, quite often one or two boys in their class made them laugh. And it was kind of like that sort of class clown idea. So we realized that the tone of voice for Jelly Pie Central really had to be mm. by children for children. But I think getting that user experience right is really important. Sure. And, and what about, I mean, in terms of discoverability, because I, you know, when you first showed me Jelly Pie, I kind of looked for it on YouTube, and there's loads of videos, actually. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, uh, mm -hmm. so those, uh, those bloggers who have actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. like Lonnie has been, has yeah, been yeah, yeah. which is yeah, super yeah. funny. So is yeah. YouTube a part of your discoverability um, strategy as well? How important is that? Well, 
Lonely Doss did have an impact, it had quite a significant impact. Mm. But the the really sort of like the only main driver that we've really seen is Apple. Support. Really? Okay. okay. That's the only thing. So you know we've we tried lots of lots of different things. And the we've app done. is free, is that right? Um, the app is free, okay. absolutely. So when the app was featured in the App Store in the US, we then saw 8,000, 12,000 downloads a day and it went straight to number one. Um, and it has been sustained from that. And it was quite interesting because then it was picked up by app stores in lots of different markets and it kind of went round different markets kind of reaching number one. So it was really interesting okay. to watch that. But yeah, we tried um, PR, which didn't have a massive impact on, on Jellyfly. Right. Um, and we had some great articles written. And, but mm. and you know with the Apple thing, you guys both mentioned Apple as well. Mm. We found too that with the feature, you know, when you get featured in the big banner up top, because it scrolls through, it doesn't have as much of an impact as getting the second bit that everyone sees, because yeah, yeah, no one yeah. kind of sits there to yeah, watch yeah, the banners yeah. go yeah. through. Yeah. So, yeah, I found the same thing. Yeah. 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 And, and Frederico, you, Frederic, you're, you know, you're launching a new brand. Um, but I, I suppose, am I right in saying that what you're launching first is an app with a book as well? Um, we're still looking for the right strategy. Um, definitely, this is a product, so yeah. we are finished with the app. Um, but this is part of an overall strategy. So this is um, it's going to function. It's functioning uh, as a showcase um, to give for the a, brand, right? For the brand. So uh, the app is sitting in the middle, uh, in between the picture book, and you can turn pages. Uh, uh, it's fully uh, illustrated, there is, uh, there is uh, text in rhyme, so it can give a, a very clear uh, picture of what the book is going to be, uh, but it's animated, there's uh, music, uh, um, uh, interaction, so it's kind of giving a hint of what the animated series uh, could be. Um, we bring the app together with the Bible, so the full description of the world, the characters, sure. uh, 52 storylines, uh, and this is, um, we don't consider that a product itself, uh, but is, is, is a way we can give uh, a closer feeling and understand, uh, understanding of what the brand is. Okay. So and it's strategical to... Um, to the overall sort right. of brand strategy. Right. And, and in terms of, you know, once it's all ready, what is your strategy to get people to find it? Is it about finding partners as well who can bring that sort of like as their marketing prowess or experience right. to your brand? Right. Or, or are you self-publishing the apps? We really believe this needs partners that will help us to bring the overall brand of Melee to life. So you're looking for a gaming partner, a publishing partner, or, or publishing media, would be, any media? Yeah, any media publisher would be perfect. Um, we're related, uh, we're trying to get in contact with kids. Publisher have their um, connection. They, sure. they, Using they someone credibility. else's traffic. Right, right. A good way to and um, it could function both ways. So we could partner for the entire brand or we could uh, partner just for the launch of the app to see also the reaction of the audience, grow an audience, okay. engage an Depending audience. Depending on the appetite of the partner. Right. Okay. And then go to broadcaster with an already existing audience. That means lowering their risk in terms of um, is still an unknown property. Is, is, is a, sure. Uh, right. So we will show that... Um, there is an audience. There are people that are looking for that and uh, want more. Okay. And last but not least, Antonio, Discoverability, how, how are you getting people to find the website? It's really interesting. We, we have a really different kind of perspective on this, I think, to, um, to all three of you guys that have spoken. Um, like, if I can go back to when we first started thinking about this, uh, I 
to be a bit belt and braces about it, I just went and talked to loads and loads of different people about how they were doing marketing in, in terms of their digital products. And we ended up with a marketing plan that was literally about 15 pages long, and it had all sorts of different things. And everybody I spoke to would t- say to me, oh, you must do this, you must who, go who and did you chat to? to? Was it people in publishing or just media people in general? Um, yeah, I, I, like, of... I was completely across the board. Loads okay. of parents as well. All right. And, uh, you know, everybody said to me, oh, you must, it's all about the parent bloggers. You've got to go and talk to the parent bloggers. I can't write that one down. Uh, you know, you've got, to, uh, you've got to be going to the, the teach meets. You've got to be going to this. You've got to be doing that. You've got to do all the PR. And what actually happened is that 90% of it didn't work at all. Um, parent bloggers were such a good example of that. You know, we were told by so many people that they were the key to getting our product out there. We started talking to them and... It's just amazing, you know, they were, they were already so saturated, people trying to communicate with them, yeah. and then you kind of did something with them, and it would create this little tiny amount of impact, and we just thought, this is a waste of time. So what we did is we just massively cut all this stuff out, and um, we, we noticed at the same time we were doing all this stuff that actually the product was having this, um, this quite strong virality about it. So you were talking about discoverability. We're not necessarily really... Uh, we don't have anywhere that we can put ourselves. There's no app store yet because we're a web product at the moment. There's nowhere for us to put ourselves. There's nowhere for people to find us. You know, we're just a website in the middle of all the other do, millions, do people billions Google of websites. AdWords or anything like that? Or um, well, funnily enough, we actually got a uh, bit of a tip. If you're in a charity, you can get $10,000 worth of free uh, Google, Google AdWords a month. It's really easy to apply for. Wow. We applied for it, had it within two weeks. They're just about to up it to $40,000. So do it because it's it actually genuinely is uh, too good to be true. Yeah. I'm still I'm still trying to wonder how Google are going to screw us over with this. <laughs> Sorry if anyone from Google's here. But it, it does. It actually does genuinely seem like a great deal, and it's really really helping us. But in the end, we what we've done is we've really cut it down, and we we don't have a lot of marketing spend. We've got hardly anything really. So we have a fantastic community manager, Danny, who just does a lot of talking to people, and she just makes sure that she's part of all of the conversations that are going on. And those things are so useful because. So is it just like good old fashioned grassroots marketing kind of talking to? people it is and it it, you know the the thing that you have to bear in mind about this stuff is that it takes such a long time like we're you know we are kind of in our second year now of of doing that kind of work and you know the the, the traditional sort of app sales model is you get this huge kind of spike at the beginning and then it goes down to almost nothing and then this long tail and then you make the product free for a day and it goes up a bit and then carries on our our curve is completely different to that it's just a straight line going up like this slowly but surely Mm. and every year we're getting three times as much usage as the year before and teachers are sending it to each other and the way that we've done that is by making ourselves invaluable we don't have any place that we can put ourselves because we're a product for four to six year olds there is no waterstones there's no right uh, there's no site or app store which holds that kind of out of curiosity too you know when you looked into the seo how people are finding your site well, what are the keywords that people are using to find you if um, you don't mind we're not saying. being found at all on seo yet really yeah. okay well, we are a little bit, but it's not a big part part of it. Um, but that takes that takes a really long time to build, you know. Right. Uh, and, but we are starting to move up the rankings, and we're now number nine for phonics. So it's games. mainly just mm-hmm. teachers telling other teachers or parents telling other parents. It's really well, word of mouth. Isn't actually, it? teachers are the main driving force for it. It's really interesting, and and. and uh, uh, you know, they are for parents and teachers who find the the app, uh, the game. Um, yeah, the the highest kind of uh, proportion of where they came from was being recommended by a okay. teacher. And do you but go to so, like BET and things like that? Like we do, but again, that, that was another anything? thing we were talking. We ha- you have to go to bet. You have to get a, a stand up bet. It costs something like ten thousand yeah, pounds. You know, we can. <laughs> You know, think about how much of a community manager we can pay for that. And yeah, sure. we've been there a couple of times, and and you know, it's not it's. 
to just, just those big kind of traditional things just don't work. Yeah. And and I think where that where there's something really interesting learning in, in, in that is that what I found is even when we were looking for a community manager, there are so few people who understand the new forms of digital marketing. Right. You know, most marketing people just they know how to run an event, they know how to make nice things, but they, they've never <laughs> had any of what they've done particularly analyzed. And in this world Look up growth hacking. Look at what growth hacking means in the startup world. It's about how you analyze your data and you make sure that for every single person that's coming to your website that you are uh, making the right amount of long-term value out of them that's more than it costs to bring that person in. And if you can get that, those kind of calculations right and you can analyze your data, you can have a successful product, but hardly anyone knows how to do it. Right. So it's the secret yeah. sauce. There's definitely, well, yeah. Right. But nobody knows. I don't think anybody knows what the secret sauce is. Yeah, yeah. Does anyone in the audience have questions? Do I have a lot of other questions? But I thought we'd open up to the audience as well. Anything? I actually can't see if anyone puts their hands up either. So. There's one over here. Yeah. Oh. Hi, um, I'm from Mind Candy. Um, I work on Mushroom Monsters magazine. Um, I was just wondering, you've all talked about discoverability, but no one really mentioned monetization. Have you all found that you have been able to monetize, or is it that that's not necessarily the aim for now? Mm. Yeah, I think that is a really tricky one, isn't it? Because I think, especially in that sort of digital story market, it's quite uncompetitive right now. Um, so I think that's definitely the, sort of like the right time to actually be creating a brand for yourself and trying to stand out in that area. But I think monetization is, is also really difficult. Um, what we found at Egmont is that it's really the well-loved brands, um, when we put those with a story app, that those are the ones that are actually making profit. Um, otherwise, you know, I think, I think you're right, there's lots of other reasons why you might do digital storytelling, sort of extending the world of a product or marketing around a print product, or even doing like a landmark product for, you know, raising your brand and your profile. I'm going to disagree slightly. I think there's loads of competition. I mean, there's so much stuff. I think a lot of it isn't very good, necessarily. Um, and probably, probably a lot of stuff maybe doesn't... A lot of stuff probably doesn't monetize very well. Um, but I think there is actually... I mean, there's a lot of stuff on the App Store. So I guess it depends how you want to define competition, perhaps. Um, I mean, when, I, when I'm thinking about, oh, you know, what are our apps going to compete against? I think there's a lot of stuff, and you really have to fight for a space. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the challenges around monetizing children's content is that a lot of things that are really possible for adult apps and game apps, like, you know, in-app purchasing and advertising or all these different, you know, sort of freemium models uh, are really frowned upon in a lot of kids' content or, or, you know, sort of heavily restricted, often for good reason. Mm -hmm. And so you have to really think about other, way, other ways of monetizing. So our fairy tale apps, for instance, are, you know, paid downloads. They cost... £2.99 or $4.99, and then you bought them and you've got the whole thing. Um, and that means that, you know, it's they're squeaky clean from a, you know, a sort of parental point of view. But you're, it's much harder to sort of achieve a really high volume of sales th um, from them. So, you know, something like Made in Me's model is really good because it's very clear what it is. It's not trying to sneak in at purchasing under the door. It's just a digital shop. I mean, and it's sort of, that's the kind of the model that, you know, works well. And we're looking at things like that mm. as well. Um, and, that, and I do think that it's about other revenue streams. So when you say monetization, yes, absolutely. It's about selling digital products or books. But I think for us and other publishers as well, your digital product, a lot of, you know, there's publishers who also sell the tech behind their, their digital products. So that's a revenue stream that's not about search per se. It's a business to business interaction. Um, for us, you know, we make half of our revenue from doing marketing. So, you know, and it comes from people like Save the Children, from Bowdoin, from Giraffe Restaurants. So that's another revenue stream which isn't reliant on 
discoverability. It's just about how good your salesperson is, really. Do, do you have anything to add to that, um, Antonio Federico? I think this, um, our biggest challenge is, I think money will come later on when the brand is going to be on the market, when television and visibility is going to be announced by uh, mm. the rest of the brand eventually. It's not been done for making money at this point, where a small company will doing everything in-house. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge was to reach a very high uh, quality standard um, and getting with the product while keeping all the rights and control, creative control uh, as well of... Um, because your app your is also more of a proof of concept, isn't it? It's something that you can use a, you know, a, an unusual and unique way to kind of pitch an IP in <laughs> right. yours as well, yeah. So I was um, sharing the Bible, the story Bible, um, and everybody got the, the overall picture, got in love with, with, with the words, with the characters. Uh, as soon as I showed the app, it came to life. People were, wow! You, you got mm. there, you were promising something on this book, and actually you, you, you are there, and that's amazing. Um, mm. On the other side, we uh, arrived there because in Germany we could access uh, uh, public funds. Uh, that means that... So the grants uh, or the loans, the, the right. actual grants. They're grants. Um, right. So we don't have to share um, rights while getting to... So there's no equity share or anything, right. it's just... Right. Fantastic. So this is amazing and mm. it's a great opportunity. They are uh, supporting you to make a, um, a prototype uh, within a crowdfunding campaign plus the investment of each one of the team, the, the team members, uh, uh, in terms of work, we could reach a product. So we have now a product, a Bible, and a very clear idea of how it's going to be. All the rights are on us. Right. And the monetization comes afterwards right. once you find partners. So, and I think it's something interesting too where you know, publishing, and I suppose music as well, um, actually gaming too, where you know, the, the intellectual property, I mean, the, the, the books that we publish, the media content that we create is what we use to make money, where something like TV or film, whilst film brings in money, the you know, revenue from TV actually isn't from broadcast, it comes from consumer products. So it's interesting that you know, the way you, got, you two are looking at it is that this, these apps or these digital products are free, but it's about building a brand mm -hmm. and the money comes from things afterwards. So it's more strategic play. And Antonio, obviously your website, it's a charity, so it doesn't make money, but there must be a measure of success. Is that download, does it improve literacy in the country? I mean, how do you, yeah. what's the measure of success? Ultimately, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's exactly, yeah, exactly that. That's what we're trying to achieve. And, and when you kind of break that down, that's obviously down to quantitative and qualitative uh, sort of analytics. And, you know, we, we have very, very strong data on how people are using the uh, platform. We know, for example, that um, with the first two games, it's probably sort of, uh, something like six or seven hours worth of gameplay. And we know that 20 or 30% of kids that start uh, start the game can finish it. That's high. Wow. Um, and, you know, we know that kids play for about 20 minutes at a time. And then we can kind of mix that to together with the qualitative stuff we get back from teachers, which we get a lot of, you know. And, uh, you know, some teachers are critical of some of it. And then we try to change, change those things. Um, but, yeah, that's absolutely what we're trying to do. Um, I do have a couple of thoughts on the kind of the the monetization question, just to kind of throw in there. I think that it's been really interesting the last couple of days because I, I do feel like there's a lot of debate here about, like, how do we make money out of this stuff? And I think people are really struggling with it in general. And I do genuinely think that this will get easier o over time, over the next five years. I do think it's partly because we're in a slightly kind of odd place at the moment where, for example, 
there's this kind of natural limit on what people will pay for an app and it doesn't really matter what's inside that app you know like and mm. i find it really strange that a parent will spend like 10 pounds on a beautiful book but they would never spend 10 pounds on a beautiful app in a million years mm. now that that will change over time because I think people will start to, to realise that there is kind of like uh, the, there's value in paying more for content. I hope they do. Um, uh, but I think for us, if we did have to make money out of our product, I think it'd be extremely difficult because we have to, you know, we have to go through this period of building this thing, which takes a really long time, building this audience, and then we'd need to get to a point where we were totally invaluable and people just genuinely, like teachers genuinely thought, we can't survive without this, and then they would start paying for it. But getting to that point takes takes a lot of time. So that is the long-term goal, would you say, is to actually put a pay, to have a paywall on the website? No, or some no, sort of absolutely component. for us. This will be, always the web version of this will always be free, yeah. But okay. I'm just saying that if we did want to, it'd be very difficult. So that, you know, I don't, I, you know, I, I think yeah. it needs an entirely different way of looking at it in terms of how it's invested in from how a publisher would normally mm -hmm. do it. I mean, maybe physical books, maybe consumer products, maybe well, educational quite, quite toys. Quite possibly, right? yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, as I said, I, I, hope, I hope it does get easier. I think people, you know, <laughs> there will, I think, you know, there'll be a few business models that people will hit on, I think, and they'll realize, okay, this is the way we're going to do it. And, uh, and, and those will last for a long time, I'm sure. Okay. Any other questions? There's, there's several. I can see you. I, I just wanted to make a comment. This is Kate from Kate Wilson from Nosy Crow. From a founder perspective, I wanted to say that um, we have to have apps that make money. Um, we are um, owner-managed, effectively. There are five individuals who own the company. We have no external investment. The money we spend on making apps, as I often say to my staff, um, is money I could otherwise spend on shoes or, or, or wine. Um, and, and it has to make a return. I think um, we shouldn't write off uh, you know, pay-to-download apps. We haven't. Hi, I'm Lucy Gill from The Good App Guide. Um, and I was really interested um, in, in a lot of what you're saying. Um, but one of the things you were talking about, um, Stephanie, about uh, generally for Jelly Pie is the fact that user experience is so important. Um, I was interested to know to what extent everyone on the panel involves children within um, the development process and, and, and afterwards in terms of the ongoing process of developing apps um, that, that, that are best for kids. Yeah, um, I mean, we, we do. We sort of, we have a, a local school who we work with and we go into there regularly. We bring children in, we do sessions, we film them. Um, we've got a whole sort of voting system so, so that they can sort of say you know, their response to things um, without trying to please us. Um, we kind of observe how, they, how they're engaging when they sort of lose interest, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, so we do that throughout the whole process. And I think, I think that's vital. I think that's a massive difference as well from a traditional publishing company where they create mm. a single product and then there's a long tail, isn't there? And it kind of, you know, it can just live for, for quite a long time. Sometimes it takes several years for that to kind of take off. And I think um, with digital, you have to keep on user testing because I think our audiences change and they change in terms of what they expect and, and what they can do at different age groups. And so I think you have to keep on repeating it and you have to keep on keeping your content dynamic as well. Um, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And we do, we do exactly the same thing. We, we do a lot of uh, testing in schools. And I think one of the things, that, uh, as, as Stephanie was saying, we do it all the way through the process. And when I mean all, all the way through the process, when I say that, I mean 
we start off with prototypes that are kind of sometimes just blocks on screen, you know, just mm -hmm. to see whether a fundamental game mechanic works. And we throw stuff away because it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, you know, you save so much money in the long run because you don't build stuff that doesn't need to be built. Mm -hmm. um, and just as a kind of a, a story, an interesting anecdote about this is that one of the most interesting conversations I've had in the whole, this whole process was a conversation with Peter Osborne about Agile, and I was explaining what Agile uh, is from a kind of a software uh, perspective. So if you don't know what that means, it's basically the, fundamentally the idea of starting with the minimum possible thing you can create, testing it, building on it, building on it, and just gradually, gradually iterating it until you get to the point where you have a finished thing. And um, he was just saying he's, he's wished he could do that in books for the last 40 years mm. and never has been able to. And the only thing that he can test out is, is a cover. You can't test out half of a children's book. It doesn't work. Uh, so you've got to either make the thing or, or not make it. And there was this kind of this light, this light going on in his head. And, and he, he really got it and just was so excited by that idea. And for me, it's just brilliant because it means that you never, ever feel like you're at that much risk. You, you've, you know, you've got halfway through the product. You know that you've tested everything. You continue going. And by the end, time you get to the end, mm -hmm. you, you fundamentally know that it's going to work. Mm -hmm. And it really isn't that hard to do. You just stand there and you watch a kid using it. And they will tell you if they don't like it or if they can't use it. I don't know if you find this, but quite often the children will sort of come up with an extra idea and make your idea even stronger, won't they? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and if, you, if you're not doing it, it's because you don't really believe in your product, personally. Mm. I, I have, a, I think, a slightly different perspective here. I mean, although I do agree entirely with the sort of everything that you've just said. <laughs> but we, we have found that, I mean, we do, <laughs> we do but that, all that being said, um, I'm now going to disagree. Um, <laughs> no, so we have, I mean, obviously, I think there's obviously huge value in user testing, those sorts of things. What we found, although, I mean, we do quite a lot of sort of more informal or ad hoc um, sort of user testing with, you know, the children of members of our own team, that sort of thing. We found particularly during an app's early phases of development, it's quite difficult to give it to a child and expect to get much sensible feedback because while it's broken and full of bugs and maybe there isn't sound and maybe the art's missing in one scene, it's hard to get them to sort of intellectually grasp all that and still point out what, they sh what needs to be done to improve it, aside from the fact that there's no sound and no audio and no music, nothing's actually happening yet. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, that, I mean, there's some sort of some of the technical things that, pre that prevent it. That being said, we have, you know, a few really intuitive things are made much clearer by watching children use our apps. Mm. Mm. Um, and I, I don't want to be really rude, but I, I can demonstrate one of them on an iPad if, if in a minute if anyone wants to see it, um, if that's okay. I don't want to sort of get up. And, Why not? Is that okay? And I'll show, I'll show you a piece of um, user testing that sort of absolutely flipped one of our scenes really quickly. If we can yeah. get back to the iPad, I'll show you something. Um, so in our, in our Jack and the Beanstalk app, um, there's a scene where Jack meets a dragon. Uh, and um, sort of the way that it works, here we go, great. Um, I mean, the way um, that the Jack and the Beanstalk app normally works um, is sort of predicated on the Western assumption that children read from left to right. So Jack enters most rooms on the, the, the left of an iPad screen, um, and the stuff, whatever the action is, is on the right. Um, on this scene, he enters from the right instead, and there's this dragon on the left. Um, and the reason is because, I'm going to turn the sound off. The reason is because um, the game in this scene involves touching these bricks, um, which have little lines on them which correspond to bars. So when I touch these, when I touch these bricks, bars will open, and eventually I'll get the right combination, and the dragon will be free. So here you go, look. I'm, I'm touching these and this sort of thing. And what we found when we were testing this is that when Jack enters on the left, which he did initially, he came on that side, children were putting their hand over um, the screen and covering the, the, the dragon, so they couldn't see what effect they were having 
on the stones they were pressing. It didn't work because most children are right-handed. It only worked for left-handed children. So we, had, we flipped it and we put the stones on this side so right-handed children would touch the stones and still see what effect they were having. And that's something we only really noticed when we used it with children. Right. Other, you know, otherwise, it was, sort of, it was easy enough for us to work out what's going on because we made the app, but children wouldn't have got it. There you are, that's something really quick. That's really interesting. <laughs> I, I just want to add something about um, testing. Your question is, is, is really going to the point. Uh, testing is the key and uh, being really uh, having your eyes and ear open uh, to kids, but also parents. Uh, our experience is trying to provoke kids and parents uh, 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 spending time together at the beginning. And then also the kids can play mini games again and again uh, as part of the story, outside of the story, and so on. Um, our experience brought us uh, the creator uh, and the illustrator, the amazing illustrator of, of Millie, uh, Jana Schell, um, start with the story about the snail. Everybody was like a bitch, like a snail, <laughs> uh, slime. <laughs> uh, so we had to test that, and um, um, the, the, the initial creation or uh, development of, of the story uh, happened at the Academy for Children Media in Germany, where um, the, the participants are visiting uh, schools and trying to test stories from the very beginning. I mean. I'm aware that we're talking about game mechanic on a website is, is very important to test uh, how the user experience is made, is designed. Um, you're dealing with well-known uh, and beloved stories. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we are coming out with a unique and, and uh, uh, new story, so, and about the snail. So we had to <laughs> uh, find out what's going on and it had a tremendous success in schools. So we were playing those games, uh, being a snail and moving really <laughs> slow. And at the end, okay, um, boys and girls, everything is finished. Go back to your seats. And they were going to the seat <laughs> very slow. It took 10 minutes uh, to get there. Then we were running uh, on other uh, situation, um, um, snails competition. Uh, uh, which snail is faster? So everybody was, all the kids were really happy about that. Once I took the snail and I gave it to, and I brought it to a kid, it was like, yes, slime. <laughs> so how do we find out a solution for the slime? Slime is magic, it's for superheroes, the, the, the magic power. So I took the snail and I put it on a tree and it stayed because of the slime. Whoa. And I took it and put it on, on, <laughs> a, uh, on a branch or, or something and it stayed because of the slime. So actually we created inside of the app the magic slime, which is sparkling full of light and beautiful sounds. that really will solve a lot of problems of other creatures while using the magic slime. So uh, testing starts from the very early phase uh, until um, crowdfunding campaigns. We got uh, many people saying, we're not pledging directly, but uh, um, we want to test it. Can we pass by your office and just play around and see how things work? So how does that environment with, with uh, parents and kids sitting together, or brother and sister sitting together and playing around, <clears throat> mm -hmm. how, we, how do we um, listen and, 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 and get feeded by, by uh, uh, the users, basically, to create this experience from the very beginning until the last uh, version that will be on the market for kids to play out. So that's uh, a key uh, part of, of our work, of Right. Yeah. So I think we have time probably for one more question. 
Hello, I'm Gemma from Penguin Random House. Um, I kind of wanted to quickly go back to the monetization question. Um, so, uh, specifically for Tom, so with your premium apps, do you have a problem with piracy? No, none at all. <laughs> um, that's one of the great things about... Um, we don't develop our apps for Android. They're only available for iOS. Um, and, uh, you know, we haven't come even close to observing something like a problem like piracy. I mean, obviously, part of that is to do with the fact that the ones I show at Fairy Tales, the original stories, you know, are copyright-free, so we haven't seen people sort of try and rip off a fairy tale in a way that we can really be angry about. Um, <laughs> uh, much as I'd love to own Little Red Riding Hood, I'm afraid that sort of belongs to us, all of us. Um, no, um, we haven't, you know, the closest thing we've come um, to observing anything like piracy, and actually I find this a little flattering, um, are people who tag their apps with Nosy Crow. Um, so when you search for Nosy Crow on the App Store, occasionally other, people, other people's apps will appear. Um, and you only have 100 characters of keywords to use, um, so there's not much uh, that you can use. And so, I mean, that's the closest we've come to any kind of brand infringement. I mean, the IRS store is great for preventing um, piracy of any kind. You don't see clones very often. You know, it's a much bigger problem for Android, I think. Thanks. Right. Stuart had a question, so last one. Sorry to make you run around the whole room. Um, <laughs> I was interested in, in the, how the role of the writer is evolving alongside all this stuff. What kind of people you're looking for as the kind of generators of this stuff and how the teams work together or whether there's one person who's still the kind of auteur. How is that kind of the traditional creator changing with all this? I think that is really interesting, isn't it? From sort of like traditional publishing point of view and you have like one talent kind of crafting this whole sort of piece of work. It's been really interesting with, with Jelly Pie and creating that IP, which is also an umbrella brand for a lot of their books. Um, we were slightly nervous about it because of because of you know that point of view and that sort of you know developing something around author products but really pleased by the response of some of the authors um i mean one of them actually said you know he wished he'd thought of the idea and i think you know they have kind of you know some of them have really sort of grasped hold of it and the idea that if they sort of contribute to it and they're part of it then that's part of that whole sort of community building and i think you know some of our authors are becoming really digitally savvy and engaging in social media um and sort of, you know, aware of that whole sort of outreach and, and what digital can do. Um, I mean, we, we write most of our apps in-house, actually. I mean, we make our apps entirely in-house. The whole process is done by sort of members of our team. Um, a lot of the writing we do ourselves, um, rather than going to authors, because our apps, are the, the, they're created in such an unusual way, and the text in particular is so unusual. It's not like a linear story mm -hmm. um, which relies on, you know, this thing, then this thing, then this thing, then this thing. Um, aside from the fact that the stories are often very multi-branching or, or sort of non-consequential, there's so much dialogue. There's sort of automatic dialogue, and there's this sort of canon of the text that runs through the story. And then there's lots of tertiary dialogue that you can sort of prompt at any time. And it's hard to find writers who understand that perfectly and get that. You know, the closest we've come is finding people who, rather than submitting a manuscript, maybe submit something that looks like a TV script. But that still is a sort of linear this and then this, and then it's about you know, responding to each other. And our, you know, our apps in particular work in a kind of an unusual way that makes it quite difficult, actually. Hmm. I mean, our app is probably the most book-like because you know, they're, they're, just, they're digital books and made to look like books. And even the, the titles that we commission, they come from authors, uh, many times unpublished. Yeah. So well, ours is probably the most traditional process, actually. I think that we're running out of time, is that right? Yeah, we're out of time. So thanks very much. Thank you to the panelists.